So today, our message comes from Romans chapter 10, and we're going to start at verse 14 and go to the end of the chapter at verse 21. So again, that's Romans 10. We're going to start at verse 14, and we're going to go through verse 21. Before we get started, let me pray, and um, I'll read the verses, and then we'll get into it. Father, we thank you that you are holy, that you are lifted up above all, as, as Eddie and the team were just singing, Lord, Shalice and, and Rachel and Frank, thank you for their uh, dedication to, to lifting and hollowing and, and making your name holy, praising and worshiping you, God. We pray that during this time, the passage of Scripture would be open to our minds and to our hearts, that you would open us up to truth that we can obey and, and fulfill by the power of your Holy Spirit and live out with joy. We thank you. We praise you. We ask all of this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to read, starting at Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 21. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Uh, before I get started, or before I started, I wanted to make a point to thank those of you who volunteer in the children's ministry and the nursery. And part of the reason I say that is those of you that have served in the children's ministry or served in the nursery know that that is not a simple ask, especially if you have to serve in the children's ministry and teach the lesson to the kids, because a lot of the questions that the kids ask can be more difficult than questions that adults ask sometimes. Um, I, I've heard of friends who are teaching a kid's lesson before on Genesis, and one of the kids shouts out, how come the snake in Genesis can talk, but animals today can't talk? Would you be ready to answer that on the spot when you're, and explain it to a kid, right? These are questions that oftentimes you kind of brush under the rug as adults, but kids, they'll, they will throw it out to you. Um, and Paul is really in Romans 9 and 10, he's been hitting on some of those big questions that maybe we've swept under the rug in our adult age. For example, is God unjust by choosing to show mercy to some and not others? Romans 9.14 addresses that. Another one is God powerful. If God is powerful, how are people still responsible for whether or not they choose to believe in his son or not? Romans 9.19 addresses that. What about the moral people or the good people who don't receive or believe in the message of Jesus? Romans 9.32 addresses that as well. You may have been asked questions like these by someone who rejects Christianity or just doesn't believe yet. And the modern versions uh, might sound something like this, right? You've heard of the problem of evil. If God is powerful, how does he allow evil to exist? 
or just the, the, the sort of, I think, genuine question, what about people who've never heard the gospel? You're telling me that I have to believe this message in order to be saved, but what about people who live in remote villages and never heard or had a chance to hear the gospel, or is it fair that they are punished? Or what about my grandmother, who was the nicest person who ever lived? She never cursed, never said anything bad about anybody. If she doesn't believe in Jesus, is she going to be judged and be apart from him when she passes away? Will God judge her? Those are all genuine questions that people have. These questions are answered really throughout Romans 9 and 10, and, and you could point to other places in the scripture they're addressed as well. It's not just Romans 9 and 10, right? So the, the question I mentioned some scriptures earlier, the question first, is God unjust to punish some and not others? Romans 9, 14, God says it directly there. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy on, and our acceptance is dependent on his mercy and not human will. So it's answered pretty plainly there. Another one, the question of God being powerful and still allowing people, uh, God being all-powerful and people still rejecting or not choosing to submit to his will, that's addressed in different parts. But in Romans 9, picking up in verse 20, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable and another for dishonorable use? What if God desiring to show his, his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has paired beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews, but also the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and those who are not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, I will, they will be called sons of the living God. So essentially, we are still responsible for our choices, even though God is all-powerful. What about the moral people who reject Jesus? This is answered directly in Romans 9.32, where it talks about it being based on faith and not works, and that Jesus is this stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So essentially, our righteousness comes by faith, and not on anyone's works, no matter how moral or righteous they are. So those are really quick bumper sticker answers to difficult questions. You can go back and listen to sermons that we've preached in depth on all of those verses and get the full deep dive. But you've probably heard people ask those big, tough questions, and Paul addresses them throughout Romans 9 and 10. And you could address them by talking to your friends and walking them through Romans 9 and 10, showing them the messages and the sermons that we've preached on these things and, and giving them the arguments similar to the way Paul does and that wouldn't be wrong to do that. Because the answer to all of these questions points us back to different elements of the gospel. The good news that Jesus came incarnate in the flesh, that he was crucified for our sins, as we just read about in Isaiah 53, that he was raised on the third day, as we just celebrated last week, that he is seated at the right hand of the Father, offering righteousness to any of us who would turn to him in repentance and faith. That's why these big questions are good to ask, because they turn us to and remind us of the gospel. And if the gospel message is true, then anyone can be saved. And God is not unjust by choosing to justify some and not others, because he's all-powerful. If the gospel message is true, God can sovereignly choose who trusts in his son, and at the same time, we as individuals are responsible for whether or not we reject his son. We can hold those truths in tension. And if the gospel message is true, the moral people, the good people who reject Jesus will be judged because they didn't receive the imputed righteousness that we all can, no matter what our past is, that we all can 
from Christ. So all these truthful elements of the gospel address our tough questions. But why do people still reject it? Why do you have people you know in your life who you probably want to become Christians and they don't? They've probably heard the sermons that we might have preached or sermons similar to them. They've had these questions and, and, and maybe got the chance to have them answered before. And you could say in one sense that, well, maybe like we heard about in Romans 9, God has chosen some to believe and not others. And that might be true, but I don't want to just use that to sweep everything under the rug. I don't want to rush to that answer because gospel truth can be plainly stated, but gospel truth is not all that's described here in Romans 10. I want you to imagine something for a second. Someone tries to tell you that Mount Everest is a tall mountain. So they say, well, Mount Everest is a really tall mountain. It's 29,000 feet tall. The average person is five to six feet tall. There you go. True statement. Mount Everest is, is, is tall. End of argument. That might convince some, but it doesn't really drive the point home. And I think Paul does more to drive the point home than just making true statements in Romans 10. And he starts Romans 10 by asking some of those tough questions that we get asked sometimes or that we think about sometimes. How then can they call on whom they have not believed? The they here is referring to the Jews and Gentiles that were mentioned in verse 12 and 13. The everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's good gospel truth. That everyone, regardless of their religious background, their family life, their social class, male, female, everyone, as according to Romans 12 and 13 in verse chapter 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on one in whom they've not believed? How can I trust something that I don't even know exists? It's almost like you can't have a taste for a certain food before you've tried it before. I remember the first time I tried fried turkey for Thanksgiving. I was never the same. <laughs> years and years of eating the dry oven-baked bird, and then someone put me on to the truth. Every November now, I crave fried turkey, and I never knew about it before then. I can never go back. But before that point, I didn't know that there was a better way. And now, every year, I taste and believe that fried turkey is good. Now, I'm giving a, a trivial example, but Paul is asking that question. How can people call on something they don't know exists? Now, in one sense, you could go back to Romans and talk about how, you know, we have this moral law and we choose to reject it, but we all know deep down that there is a God and that he exists, but we reject him. And you can look all over the Old Testament for examples of people who call out for a salvific figure that ultimately ends up being Jesus, and they know they need a Savior before a Savior comes. But let's continue the logic of Paul's argument here. He reminds his readers um, of something that they have to call on, but they have to believe first. And Paul's readers might not have the same context that we do. So they're probably reading this, left wondering, kind of thinking like, well, how can, how can they call on one in whom they don't believe? He starts with this abstract question. It's, it's kind of a challenge, almost rhetorical. How can they call on one whom they don't believe? And then it becomes more personal. Paul asks a question that his reader may not know the answer to, and then he gets a little more practical, puts it into reality. Because here's the thing. We can't control other people's decisions. We can't control necessarily what they can believe. But we can influence what they hear. That's where it goes next. How can they believe in one in whom they've not heard. Now, heard in this context is really important. We can't rush past this because at the time when this was written, literacy rates were really low. So if you wanted to know about Jesus, if you wanted to know about the gospel, 
You couldn't get on Google and search for it. You couldn't buy a book and read it for yourself. You couldn't search online or read about it. Someone had to tell you, like, say it so you could hear it. How can they believe in one whom they've not heard, not Googled or searched for themselves? So it starts with this abstract question, and then it gets more contextual to something that actually they would have to do. They have to hear. Other people have to believe and call on Jesus, and they can't believe without hearing. That's not abstract. We can control what people hear. And furthermore, how can they hear without someone preaching? Now, preaching here is broad. It's not just the preaching that we're doing now and that you see on Sundays where someone gets up and opens the Bible and shares a sermon. Preaching here refers to the sharing of general good news. So it's like someone stands on a corner and says, hey, I've got good news. The, the, the pirates didn't lose 21 to zero yesterday. They actually won 21 to zero. That's not true, but it would be good news, right? But it's good news that any of us can share. There used to be those uh, car insurance commercials for Geico, and uh, there was all types of different situations, but I remember one where a doctor walked into the room with a sick patient, and the doctor says, I've got good news for you. And the patient says, am I going to get better? And the doctor says, no, you're not. But I just saved a lot of money on my car insurance by switching to Geico. <laughs> they used to do all types of different examples where the punchline was always, I just saved a lot of money on my car insurance by switching to Geico. But that's the kind of good news, that's the kind of preaching and the sharing of good news this, that this is talking about. Anytime, any place, anywhere, anyone, in any situation. Now, maybe it's, it's more tactful than the doctor did at that uh, situation where he told a patient who was sick, but it's the same concept. Anyone, anytime, any place can share this type of good news. Because in order for people to call on the Lord, they have to believe. And in order for them to believe, they have to hear. And in order for them to hear, they need a preacher who can bring them that good news. And now there's this other layer. How can they preach unless they're sent? And we have to unpack this scent here as well, because certainly um, we desire for all of us who believe the gospel to share it with our friends, to share it with our neighbors. And oftentimes when you see this word sent in the New Testament, it's used when you see, for example, Jesus sending the disciples out to share the gospel with others. And that's what we want to do for all of us as a church. We want to send you out to share the gospel, send you out to tell people about Jesus. We do that quite literally in the nicer months when it's like it is today. We'll go out and prayer walk and ask people how we can pray for them and seek to share Jesus. We want to send people out like this is talking about. That's why we preach and treat and teach and train all of you guys so that you can do it not just on Sundays, but when you're at your job, at the park, at the grocery store, you can be sent out with the gospel. But think about more complex situations where you need to be sent out to share people with the gospel. Has anyone heard of the 1040 window? Let me move forward here. I'm missing slides. This is an area of the world, a lot of Northern Africa, India, the Middle East. It refers to the latitude and longitude of the general area of the world. This 1040 window, when you learn about it, is the place where a lot of missiologists, that's people who study the, the philosophy of missions and missionaries and sending people out to preach the gospel, a lot of missiologists believe that this 1040 window is the most difficult part of the world to share the gospel. And that's for many different reasons. It could be everything from religious oppression to governmental oppression to people who just don't know the gospel to um, languages and cultural differences where in some of these regions, people don't even have access to the gospel in their own language. They can't read the Bible in their own language. It hasn't been translated yet. So the 1040 window 
is, much more, is a much more difficult place to be sent to. It would be one thing to say, I'm going to share the gospel with my neighbor. We speak the same language. We have generally the same culture. They've probably heard of Jesus. They probably have a Bible somewhere in their house. If you go to the 1040 window, you would need to be more particularly sent. And when I say sent, I mean uh, money, because flights aren't cheap. You need training to learn a local language that you probably didn't grow up hearing or speaking. You need encouragement because going to these places where people haven't heard of Jesus before is very difficult. You need prayer. There's a lot of demonic and dark spiritual activity in these places, as there is here, but it can be more particularly pronounced over there. And you also need a team of people to go with you, people to help hold you accountable and make sure that you're staying on track, right? That's what it means to be sent. And being sent is not just a burden that falls on the person going. It's a burden that falls on the entire church to make sure that people are sent out properly to preach the gospel, the gospel, hope to see churches planted that can then send out other missionaries. Now, in one sense, this 1040 window, I, I might have said it already, I'm going to say it again. There's 5 billion people in this 1040 window, and 3 billion of them have never heard the gospel before. They're unreached. So like most people you talk to in America, if you bring up Jesus, they have some context of, of who he is. It might be wrong but they've heard something about it. Three billion people never heard before. And in one sense, we could look at all those three billion people and say, God, how could you be so unjust by not saving them? How could you not allow them to at least have the gospel in their own language and be able to choose whether or not they want to believe it or not? But look at the way this passage progresses. Paul starts with, how can they call on one in whom they don't believe? Then it becomes more real. How can they believe without hearing? How can they hear without a preacher? How can they get a preacher unless one is sent? So you could be reading this, shaking your fist at God and saying, how could you not let those people hear the gospel and choose for themselves? But then as you keep reading, how can they believe without hearing? How can they hear without a preacher? How can a preacher go unless a preacher is sent? So the fist that you're shaking at God should turn into a finger that's saying, oh, the burden of this is landing on me. It's becoming practical now. How can they believe without hearing? How can they hear without a preacher? How can a preacher go unless one is sent? As much as we might want to shake our fists at God or even get ourselves tied in knots about predestination or how God can justify some and not others, and what about those who don't hear? Look what this passage leads to. It leads us to action on our part. As much as we might want to say to God, how could you know the way of salvation and not offer it freely to everyone so they can choose for themselves? In this passage, God is looking at us and saying, how could you know the way of salvation and not freely give it to everyone so they can choose for themselves? So the, the burden or the, the, the burden is flipped. It's now leading to action on our part because the good news is something that's worth sharing. It's something that's not just worth studying or using to, to think about and feel good about ourselves. The gospel is something that is worth sharing. And that's where this passage then leads to. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now, there's a lot of ways you could describe the feet who bring good news in this passage. You could say, well, the 1040 window was a really hard thing for my mind to grasp, so how compulsive are the feet of those who bring good news? Or how fearful are the feet of those who bring good news? I don't want God to judge me for not sharing the gospel with people. How obedient are the feet even, right? Like all these people don't know, I should just go share it with them. But it says beautiful. How beautiful are the feet 
of those who bring good news. Now this passage, Beautiful of the Feet, quotes a couple places in the Old Testament, Isaiah 52.7, Nahum 1.15. In both places, it's someone looking up to someone who's bringing good news, who's announcing the reign of God. And the reign of God, even described in those Old Testament passages, is not just a true reality, it's a beautiful reality. This is Isaiah 52, 7 through 10. How beautiful on the mountains are those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, you watchmen, lift up your voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. So this isn't just describing a true reality. It's describing one that's beautiful, one that's captivating, one that you would desire and want to look at. I like how the end of all the hard questions in Romans 9 and 10, the, the how do people who, what about people who don't know, or how is God just to save some and not others, or what about people who are moral but still reject God, all those tough questions and things that we get ourselves tied, tied in knots about, this is the end of Romans chapter 10, so Romans 11 picks up differently, but the end of Romans 10, and end of Romans 10 talks about beauty. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And the beauty is not just doctrine. It's not just a reformed understanding of those passages, although that's a good thing. It's not things that we learn like predestination. All those terms are good and they have their place. But the beauty that's brought is the gospel. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. The gospel is true, but the gospel is also beautiful. I was a part of a church um, similar to this one that was uh, very much into sending out missionaries all over the world. And in sending out missionaries, like I talked about being sent, one of the things that we had to do as a church is you would pray for the missionaries regularly and you would offer support financially to those missionaries. And part of praying and offering support would mean that they would correspond with us regularly. So they would send us updates, sometimes videos, sometimes emails about like, hey, here's how we're doing, here's what's going on in country X, Y, Z, where we're looking to share the gospel. I remember a story about one particular missionary family they were trying to share the gospel with an unreached people group, and they were having a really hard time. One, because in unreached people groups, typically there's a lot of uh, uh, resistance to the gospel up front, so people weren't interested in hearing about Jesus. But two, the issue that this family was having was they all kept getting sick. And this was a remote village, and so when you would get sick, you couldn't just go to a hospital. They had to take a helicopter, fly to where you were in the remote village, pick you up, airlift you out, take you to the hospital, you get better, and then you get flown back. This family got sick and was airlifted out of the village 10 separate times. They just kept getting sick, which is pretty common when you're in other parts of the world and your body isn't used to the, the things that you're intaking there. But every time this family came back, they would try again to share the gospel, and they would get sick and try, you know, 10 times back and forth. But eventually, they made progress, and they found people in the village who were open to hearing about Jesus and open to talking about the gospel. And when they asked one of the people there, they were like, hey, we've been at this for a while. What made you decide to actually want to hear more about Jesus? And he said, you know, we saw you go back and forth 10 times, getting sick, coming back, getting sick, coming back. And so eventually we thought, well, whatever these people are sharing is worth hearing. So we decided to listen. The gospel was true the first time they shared 
the message with those people, and it was true the 10th time they shared the message with those people. But sometimes it takes people seeing the worthiness of Jesus, the worthiness of the gospel in the face of our suffering in order for them to think, hmm, this is true, and maybe it's worth investigating. Maybe it's worth hearing more about. Now, even as I share that story, I want to I ground it in reality, right? That missionary family had a sending church that I was a part of. They had a support team. They had a whole network of people around them helping them navigate, like, hey, is it time to actually come home because you keep getting sick, right? They weren't just Rambo in the jungle punching people and, and defeating demons for Jesus. There was a serious, like, you know, care net around these people to help them make rational decisions. Because most missionaries that get sent out, you have a local church that helps you navigate the decision-making process, and local churches are the heart of sustaining missions. So this isn't just people who randomly make a decision to go to a a secluded country and, and be by themselves. You have to have a local church to help sustain missions. And actually, that's what we've been talking about today, Church Planting Sunday. A lot of you have the the materials that we sent out, there was um, an announcement before ser- the service as well talking about Acts 29 and how we desire to be a church that helps plant churches because the best way to be sent is to be sent out of a local church. People become open to the gospel, another local church is planted, and then more missionaries are sent. And so Acts 29, I just want to give you a, a brief overview of who we are and why church planting is so important to us because this ties back to this message about being sent. So Acts 29, I'll just read some points for you. Acts 29, this is the network that we're a part of, like Jackie said. Acts 29 is a global network of churches serious about church planting. There's an African proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. The Acts 29 global community knows we can best bring the gospel to the ends of the earth uh, when we do it in partnership with churches who share our passion for making disciples of all nations. Our efforts are multiplied and our God is glorified when we work together to advance his kingdom on earth. We're made up of over 700 churches in nearly 50 countries. And on any given Sunday, our worshipers are uh, singing in over 30 languages. We recruit, train, assess, and holistically support churches, church leaders, and church planters to plant healthy, multiplying churches. We partner with believers around the world to plant churches in all contexts, suburban, urban, rural, and everything in between, and in any place where Jesus is either named nor known. We believe the church is God's primary mission strategy on earth. Therefore, being faithful to the Great Commission's call to make disciples means being passionate about church planting. Local churches stand as a trusted presence in the community, offering hope and help amid trials and tragedies, proclaiming Christ, pro- proclaiming Christ and seeing lives transformed by his gospel and for his glory. As we plant more healthy, multiplying churches, we advance Christ's kingdom on earth. This is the beauty of church planting. I love how it ends with beauty because that's what this passage talks about, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. All those examples of what it means for us as a local church, and there are other churches that do this. I'm not saying we're the only ones by any means, but how we as a local church embrace the idea that missionaries and preachers need to be sent. So the beauty of the gospel then is shown when we believe it and begin to have the truth of the gospel shape our lives and do things like send missionaries. This is what we'd aspire to be as a church, and this is why we're a part of the Acts 29 network. Now, this mindset of the beauty of the gospel being shown when we're shaped by the truth of what we know about it, this is the opposite of what was happening with many of the people who were reading Romans. A lot of them knew the truth, but they did not have the beauty of the gospel because their lives were not shaped by its truth. 
This was conveyed in ways that would have been familiar with them. So if you look in verse 16 where it starts, Lord, who has believed our message? This is a quotation of Isaiah 53. That's why we started with that before the sermon. I'm going to read Isaiah 53 in its entirety because I think it's an important picture of who Jesus is. This is Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who consider that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put on him, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Eddie talked about this, I think it was last week, and I want to uh, emphasize it again. The question Paul is asking here is, how could those who are religious, those who understood and read this passage as a part of Old Covenant Israel, how could you read this and not think it's Jesus, knowing his life, knowing his death, knowing who he was, this man who lived all the things in this passage? How could you grow up, many of them, having had this passage read to you or perhaps memorized it yourself? How could you hear that and then not recognize Jesus? Have they not heard is the question that's asked. And the answer that comes then in verse 18 is no. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the, and their words to the end of the world. Now, end of the world here refers to, for the Jewish audience, uh, the ends of those who knew Old Testament or Old Testament Israel was. So that's the end of their known world. The gospel has gone out to all of them. And so the conclusion must be, well, they must have seen it and just not understood. They didn't obey, as some of your translations say. So it goes on, I will make jealous of those who are not, I will make you jealous, Israel, of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. So what's perplexing is that for many of the Old Testament readers who knew Isaiah 53, saw Jesus, knew Jesus, didn't get it, didn't believe him, there were many who did. And those many who did were Gentiles. 
people who were not Jewish, people who didn't have the whole religious history, the Old Testament context, many of them understood and believed in Jesus. That's why it says, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. And yet, I love how this ends with grace. The gospel is still available for Israel. That's what Paul has really been agonizing over chapters 9 and 10, that Israel would hear and believe because God is still holding out his hands. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now, certainly, we can read that and, and, and think of all the lessons and ways that Israel had flaws and that we could learn from them, that they had the word of God, that they had the law of God, that they had the religious tradition, but they failed to see Jesus because they didn't know about, not because they didn't know about Jesus, but because they didn't trust him. They didn't receive his righteousness. Romans 10, 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. They didn't believe. But I think some of this applies to us. And it's not because I think that the American church is Israel or that God has a special covenant with Americans today, like he did with Israel, but there are some unique things that we experience in the here and now that other believers don't have access to. We have some advantages, just like Paul talks about some of the advantages that, ha- that Old Testament Israel had. We have an advantage of one, we have the Bible in our own language. Most of us have our own personal Bibles that we can read for ourselves. We can worship and go to church without fear of religious persecution. Any question you have about your faith, you can get answered. You can search for it online. Uh, you can ask your elders before you uh, verify what you read online, but you can search for things online and get answers to your questions. We have a whole bookstore of good resources in the back for any question that you would have about your faith. You have books and books and books full of resources. The thing with that is that there are many believers historically who have not had those advantages. Remember when I was talking about literacy rates? A lot of people uh, that were reading this originally couldn't read. So if you wanted to hear the gospel or hear about Jesus or learn anything, someone had to teach it to you. Someone had to tell you. Or even in our present day, you saw the slides earlier um, when we were in Uganda and Jackie mentioned it. I have the literal same thing in my notes. We loved tons and tons of books to Uganda. The reason we did that is because they don't have access to the resources we do. If they want a book about a particular topic, you can't just get on Amazon and order it and it shows up at your door two days later. It's difficult for them to get resources. So we had to physically bring them resources because even today in the year of our Lord, 2022, most people around the world can't just click a button and get a book sent to their door. We can. We have advantages. And the question is, with all of our advantages and resources, are we believing the gospel? Are we obeying the gospel? Are we trusting Jesus? Are we the beautiful feet who are bringing good news and telling people about Jesus? Or are we like Israel? All the writings on the wall, all the questions you want could be answered, but we don't understand. We don't obey. The gospel is true and the gospel is beautiful. Israel had the truth, many in Israel had the truth, but their lives were not shaped by the gospel, so they did not have the beauty of the gospel because their lives weren't shaped by the truth. That may be some of us. We have the books, we have the resources, we have the sermons, we have the podcasts, we know all the right preachers to listen to, but are we displaying the beauty of the gospel by sharing it with others? I mentioned Mount Everest earlier and said that imagine you're trying to convince someone that Mount Everest is tall, and you say, well, you know, Mount Everest is 29,000 feet tall, and the average person is five to six feet tall, so boom, point made, Mount Everest is tall, true story. That might convince some people, but 
there's more that can be done to drive the point home. That's what Paul is doing here with this concept of beauty in Romans 10. Here's an example, continuing on the Mount Everest, right? Someone says, well, it's 29,000 feet tall. That's one way you could do it. Another way would be to say, look, let's look at it. Let's look at it together. Let's go there. Let's gaze upon the majesty of this mountain. Which is more convincing? 29,000 feet tall or look at it. If, if those of you that have seen mountains before know how incredible it can be to stand in front of something, this, it's almost hard to say because this picture doesn't do it justice. But those of you that have seen mountainous areas of the country, it's really incredible because they're just there like all the time. You fly in, walk around town, they're just there. They're so big. Which is more convincing? Or fried turkey, right? Fried turkey's good, the skin's crispy, the meat is juicy. Or someone puts the bird in peanut oil and lets it sit for 45 minutes and cuts a piece and says, here, try it. Which one is more convincing? Taste and see that the Lord is good. That's what we have the ability to do when we share the gospel with people. To have them taste and see that the Lord is good. The beauty of the gospel is shown when we, his people, by the power of his spirit, share it with others. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Not compelled, not guilty, not obedient. Beautiful. The gospel is true and the gospel is beautiful. And a telltale sign that you believe the gospel is when you begin to have this desire. It's not compulsion. It's not, uh, I feel guilty or I feel bad. It's just a desire to share it with others. Just like I tell people about fried turkey. It's good. If I walk past Mount Everest, I'm not going to be like, oh, don't worry about that. I'm like, whoa, look at that. That's amazing. That's how we know when we begin to embrace and trust Jesus and the gospel is taking root in us, when we have this just natural desire to share it with other people. Now, maybe some of you are like me and you're thinking, well, I haven't shared with everyone I could. There are people all over the world, right? The 1040 window thing, I've never prayed for anybody there. I didn't know about it. didn't really think much about it because it was weighing too heavy on my conscience. I've been ashamed I've been afraid. I've been quiet. When, when faith comes up, when I'm talking with my coworkers or colleagues, I kind of just shuffle on out of the conversation. To all of that, what I have to offer you, Jesus' body broken and his blood shed, what we're about to commemorate with communion. Anybody remember what happened when, with Jesus' disciples, many of them, when he was being crucified? They ran away. They left. They deserted him. And yet, Isaiah 53 is still true. He was pierced for their transgressions, mine and yours as well. So if that's you, just like Israel, God's hands are still open to you. Just like they were to the disciples that left him. The gospel is true. The gospel is beautiful. And to those of you that know you've messed up, Jesus says, here's my body broken. Here's my blood shed. To those of you that haven't believed yet, Jesus still is holding his hands out to you because you still have breath in your lungs. Here's my body broken. Here's my blood shed. If you've messed up, if you haven't believed, if you've been ashamed, if you've been afraid, we all get the same thing. Body broken, blood shed. For us. And the beauty of that is that the more you grasp it, the more you'll want to share it with others. So as we take communion... Let's remember what Jesus did. Let's remember the gospel message, that the gospel message is true. And let's take time as we sing to savor and gaze upon the beauty of the forgiveness that we've been offered in Christ. 
Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that for every person in this room, your hands are still held out to a disobedient and contrary people, to those of us who have turned and gone our own way, to those of us who have sinned, to those of us who haven't trusted, to those of us who have been uh, anxiety-ridden or ashamed or afraid. You hold out your hands to us and offer us salvation, offer us your body broken and your bloodshed. Help us to trust you more this week. Help us to love you more this week. Allow the message and, and, and beauty of the gospel to take root in our hearts so that we can know you, trust you more, and share you with others, Lord. Share the gospel with others where we need to be equipped or taught or trained to be able to share it more accurately, Lord. Help us to do that with practical resources and training classes and resources that are so abundant to us in here and now in the U.S. as they are to perhaps uh, believers who've lived at no other time and in no other place. Help us to take full advantage of the resources you've given us so that we can share the truth and beauty of the gospel with others, Lord. Help us to be disciples who are obedient, who are the beautiful feet, who bring good news to those who need it, God. Prepare the hearts of, of those who are um, in our immediate path and also, Lord, to the the churches that are being planted in difficult or unreached places, the missionaries that are going to difficult or unreached places, Lord, strengthen them. Strengthen the relationships they have with their local churches, God. Help them to not grow weary of doing good, to continually, um, with wisdom and, and with gentleness, God, and respect, share the gospel with those who maybe have never heard it before. And help them in the practical ways of learning languages and finding shelter and, and being able to care for and raise their families in a different context, God. Help them to equip and plant churches that are um, established and, and run by locals who can then share the gospel with others, God, so that the message of the world can go truly to the ends of the earth and we can desire for you and, and see you come back in your glory, Father. We await that day. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.